from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. These are strange days for conservatives and Republicans, not just because of the surprisingly blue outcomes of the recent election, but also because of several long-term trends that threaten their success. And even deeper, there is real intellectual rot at the base of Republican ideology that has brought it into serious conflict with traditional conservative values. Today, we're going to begin a deeper look at both conservatism and Republicanism with David French, a senior editor at the conservative magazine, The Dispatch. It's next on Detroit Today, after the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Two weeks ago, Americans went to the polls to decide who will be our future lawmakers at the local, state, and national level. And many of us, particularly in the media, were anticipating something of a rout. People believed Republicans would sweep the House and the Senate in Washington and do pretty well in places like Michigan. That's natural. Democrats control the White House and the House and Senate now in Washington. And these were midterm elections when you typically see the electorate peel away a bit from the party in power. Sometimes they outright punish that party. Well, that didn't happen. The red wave that was anticipated was more like a trickle. And in Michigan, it was absolutely subsumed by an opposite wave that was very blue in color. But all of this got us thinking on the show about what's going on with Republicans and conservatives. This is not the first time that we've seen some real chaos on the right side of the political spectrum lead to electoral consequence. So what is conservatism right now? What does it mean to be a Republican? What do they want to do if they win, if they were to get control of the White House and both houses of Congress, for instance. What kind of policies do they want to enact? And what are the values that are underpinning the ideology that drives the Republican Party? Conservatism. How do they hope to shape our country? Now, we don't make any bones around here about the fact that uh, my own ideology leans quite left. And... We, we put this show together all the time around the idea of the things that I believe and think and want to see happen. But I also really care about the idea of a flourishing democracy. And I want to have debates and arguments about policy and politics that put us as a country in the right direction. I want to be able to talk honestly, frankly, and passionately with people on the other side of the political spectrum because I believe in pluralism. I think this is a nation whose best hope is a vital left and right, working together, sometimes fighting with each other, to make sure that the values of our nation are upheld opportunity for folks, fairness, equality. Right now, I don't think we have that. Of course, the Democratic Party is not perfect, but I don't feel like most Democrats or most liberals are trying to actually destroy the system that governs our nation. I don't feel like they're trying to end the game 
that we play in this republic between left and right, which isn't just about control, but is substantively about who we are and what we want to do. But it does feel like a lot of Republicans are trying to destroy, destroy the system. Think about January 6th of 2021. Think about November of 2020. Right here in Detroit, people coming down, trying to stop vote counting as a way of making sure they retain power. There's an extremism that I think has taken over a good bit of the Republican Party that doesn't actually seem all that conservative, if you think about what conservatism actually is about. So how did we get here? And what does that mean for our country? And what do Republicans really want? Over the next several weeks, we're going to take a real deep dive into these questions and talk with a number of people who consider themselves conservatives or Republicans about what they do want, what they do believe, and what they think themselves about how the Republican Party embodies those thoughts and beliefs. Is it coming apart on the right? Or are we witnessing something else take place, something that will yield something much better than what we have right now? We've got a great guest with us to kick off this series of discussions. David French is a veteran. He runs a conservative magazine, and he spends a lot of time talking with conservatives and liberals about what conservatism is and where the Republican Party is going. He's the senior editor at The Dispatch, a conservative magazine, and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. David French, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be on. So I want to start here. Um, push back against me here if I've got this all wrong. I say in the open that I'm really concerned about the right side of the political spectrum, the values that I think of as traditional conservative values that seem to be under attack, not from the left, but from some on the right uh, themselves, and I, I'm really concerned that uh, that there's a difficulty uh, even defining what conservatism is and and who represents that. Am I wrong? Uh, you're not wrong <laughs> at all, because <laughs> people often ask me now, "What is conservatism?" And I say, "Well, when we figure it out, I'll tell you." <laughs> there. <laughs> I think it is absolutely fair to say that conservatism is in a state of flux right now. Um, let's not forget in 2020, Donald Trump ran for president without a party platform. So it used to be you could look at the Republican Party platform and get a rough approximation of what conservatism sort of ideological conservatism stood for. Uh, it's imperfect to say that the Republican Party was the political arm of the conservative movement, but it's the closest thing that we had mm -hmm. to the political arm of the conservative movement. And now I will say that the Republican Party is on the right, but it's not necessarily conservative as we've conceived of the term conservative for generations. Uh, and the way we conceived of the term was indelibly shaped by Ronald Reagan starting in his rise to the power and it rise to power in the 70s and then his two terms as president in the 1980s. And it, it generally had three legs. You would think of it as a three-legged stool to sort of oversimplify. One of the legs was sort of a broad view of limited government, that government is not always the solution to our problems, that sometimes government can be the problem. And that we want to limit and restrain the scope and power of government. The second leg of the stool was a belief in a strong national defense, including critically international alliances, such as NATO, such as our alliances with our partners in Asia, that America and the world were better off when America was deeply involved in the world and America was very strong militarily. 
And then the third part was a commitment to social conservatism, preservation of the family, public policy that helped make life easier for families, um, pro-life position, et cetera. And so what has happened in the last 40 or so years is the slow waning of that consensus followed by a sudden break with it in 2016 uh, to an America where that was much more isolationist, sort of this America first mindset of the Trump administration to uh, a much more open embrace of big government. Uh, let's not forget before the pandemic, I believe Donald Trump had one of the largest budget deficits, if not the largest bu budget deficit in the peacetime non-recession history of the United States. Mm -hmm. And then a an interesting weird morphing and twisting of social conservatism where it was purely political. In other words, that so long as you could accomplish social conservative ends, say nominating justices who would overturn Roe versus Wade, that the traditional moral character pillars of social conservatism, uh, including things like fidelity to marriage, basic honesty, integrity, were all uh, expendable. In other words, the social conservative ends uh, could justify the most extreme of means. And so that was never my conception of what it meant to be social conservative, which was a sort of a comprehensive way of life that's centered around personal integrity, fidelity and marriage, uh, con individual and personal concern for the poor and marginalized in this country, that you would never separate ends and means, but the the ends and means were profoundly separated during the Trump presidency. And then now, frankly, we're all dealing with the fallout from that. How much will endure past Trump? Are we actually past Trump? <laughs> and if there is no longer any real consensus on the right as to what it means to be conservative, what is a consensus that will emerge in the future? And all of these things are up for grabs. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little about how we a little more about how we got here. You go back to Ronald Reagan and say that that was kind of an apex of conservatism and conservative values, and it was aligned at that time with the core uh, of the Republican Party. And and now, of course, those values are are kind of hard to find in in some some corners of the Republican Party. But I I, I often wonder whether the power that uh, that Reagan had and and inspired conservatives and Republicans to want uh, and to wield was part of the problem that that it became about being in control and and making sure that you retain control way more than anything that you believe and and as you point out this idea of you know justifying any uh, any means with the, the, the with conservative ends uh, be, be becomes kind of the core thought of 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 the party. But I, I guess I have a hard time separating Reagan and his lean into power and control uh, from this consequence. You know, several decades later. Well, I mean, of course, if you're running for president, you're running for to control the executive branch of government. Sure. So <laughs> there's no such thing as sort of if you're going to run for limited government, you're still running to head the government. Uh, and so there's there's an element of Reaganism that was, you know, even when it's funny, even when Reagan was president, there were fights on the right. And I I'm old enough to remember in 1984 when he won re-election resoundingly. There were a lot of people who were saying, now, finally, Reagan can be Reagan. So there was always this tension, even within the Reagan coalition, of well, how much is the Reagan coalition actually living out sort of the ideological principles of Reaganism, the, the, you know, the limited government? Well, actually, you know, budget deficits went up under Ronald Reagan as well, in part because of the one of the other legs of the stool, the, the immense military he built up that put the Soviet Union under such strain. And when I talk about a consensus, the consensus, what we learned was a little bit overblown. There were always in the Republican coalition people who dissented, who disagreed, and who went along with it 
mainly because they still preferred, you know, say the Reagan Republican Party to the Democrats. Uh, but there was always a Buchan, what you know, you might want to call a Buchananite wing, a much more populist wing, a much more anti-elite wing, and and had a lot of support in particularly more working class areas of the party, more working class areas of the country, more support, latent support in the South, which has always been quite susceptible to populism. And so those of us who came into conservatism, as I did during the height of the Reagan era, so I was in high school when Reagan uh, was one re-election, mm -hmm. we didn't see how strong that Buchananite element was. And then when the urgency of the of the moment of, a, of the Cold War, for example, um, passed, and then there's real sense emerged that the, all of the culture was moving against the right, that the whole culture, that Hollywood, the academy, corporations, and that all that left, all that was left that the right could control was government. Then you began to see a fundamental transformation of the right's view of government. So whereas in the Reagan era, there were a lot of internal critiques that the Reagan administration wasn't living up to its limited government principles, or even moving into the Bush administration when, when President Bush expanded Medicare, for example, there was a lot of critique that says you're not living up to those limited Reagan, Reaganite principles. Then it began to switch to say that those who wanted to restrain government were being naive, mm. and that the the attainment of power and the expansion of government power was necessary for the preservation of conservative values, because the thinking was that was the last piece of American cultural authority that the right could control. Now, I think that is way overblown. I think that is very dangerous, but that was began to be a lot of the intellectual shift that, oh, we've lost everywhere. The only thing we have is government. And so therefore the attainment of power to expand our ability to wield power mm. is part of the purpose of running. Whereas with Reagan, part of it was you attain power to remove power. So you attain power to pull back government, you attain power to limit government and hand more authority to the states or to the individual. And that was a kind of a, a, a paradigm shift. So even if Reagan didn't always and consistently do that, or say the Bush administration, the second Bush administration didn't always or consistently do that. That was the default thinking that we attain power to limit power, whereas that is now not the thinking on much on the right, is you attain power to expand power. And, and that's very, that's a sea change is the way I would say it. It's a sea change, but it's, it's not universal, but it's a, that's part of the that's part of the the argument on the right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with David French, who is a senior editor at The Dispatch, which is a conservative magazine. He's also a contributing writer for The Atlantic. Uh, he's also author of Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. We're talking about conservatism and the Republican Party, uh, the crisis, if you will, that uh, that we see on the right um, with ideological underpinnings that uh, don't look like the kind of traditional conservatism that many of us are familiar with uh, and what kind of threat that poses uh, to stability uh, on the right. Two weeks ago, we saw voters around the country reject much of what is uh, the conservative party and its ideas at the ballot box. It's not the first time it's happened. Uh, there's been kind of a string of those kinds of uh, election outcomes lately. The question is, uh, what what does the party do? How does conservatism kind of reground itself and become more of the core of the Republican Party? As always, we want to have you participate in the conversation here. What do you make of the Republican Party? Uh, are you a conservative? Uh, do you identify with the Republican Party uh, through your conservatism? Do you think that it represents the things that you believe in? Uh, call and tell us about the values that uh, you hold dear and who the leaders are who represent those values. Uh, also, give us a sense of 
what you would like to do if you're a conservative. What uh, what policies do you want to see get passed? What do you think uh, is the best future for our country and the, the path of decisions that need to be laid out in order to reach that future? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we can work you into the conversation. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we come back. We'll have more with David French, but also get to you on the phones and on social. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is David French, who's a senior editor at The Dispatch, a conservative magazine, also a contributing writer for The Atlantic. We're talking about conservatism and the Republican Party, uh, the thumping they took here in Michigan just two weeks ago, uh, when many people anticipated that because it was a midterm election, they might do quite well. Uh, It is part of a long-term trend, I think, of conflict between conservative ideals and values and what the Republican Party is doing and and stands for right now. This is the, the beginning of a series of conversations we want to have with conservatives uh, about what they think about what the party's doing, how they reconcile the things that are happening inside the Republican Party that don't align with their values and, uh, of course, where we go from here. We always want to hear from you on the phones, of course, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can uh, we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, before we get to our listeners, and we've got a number of callers already queued up, we will get to you. Um, uh, I, I want to talk just a little about um, the 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 vengeful nature of the Republican Party today. And that's a word that you have used, uh, David, to describe Mm -hmm. Trump and the the MAGA movement, uh, if you will. Uh, Where does that come from? Uh, I always always kind of fall back on the idea that uh, this kind of behavior um, is rooted primarily in a fear of some sort. This is this is right. why the human mind goes to these kinds of uh, cruel extremes. But but I, I want to talk about what that fear is uh, and and where why all of a sudden it, ha- it seems to have taken over so much of the Republican Party. Well, you know, we have to go back a little bit and talk about sort of the conditions that existed prior to Trump. And even if you go back prior to Trump, one of the central facts of American part of American politics was something called negative partisanship. And this is a super important concept to explore because it explains so much of what happened next. And so negative partisanship is the belief that you or or the practice of being a part of a political party, not so much because you love that political party's ideas, but because you fear the other party, or maybe even you hate the uh, the other party. And going back to 2014 and before, we lived in a country of high negative partisanship. Republicans really didn't like Democrats. Democrats really didn't like Republicans. So in that circumstance, there you have a cultural vulnerability to vengeance and animosity. So if somebody comes along and reinforces all of your fears, reinforces all of your anger, then he can amplify all of that. And so Donald Trump connected with people's fear and anger on the right that already existed. And then he stoked it and then he amplified it. And so the way I've put it is, you know, people have asked me is, is Donald Trump the disease or is Donald Trump the symptom Mm -hmm. of the disease? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I said, he's like a symptom that makes the disease worse. So like a hacking cough can break a rib is the way I've put it. (laughs) And so what happened is he took a community of people 
who are already vulnerable and had already been exposed to a lot of fear mongering, but were already vulnerable to it and then stoked it. He sort of took, you know, if you if you imagine a person, you know, to take the old cartoons where you would be an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. He was the guy who's going to knock the angel off your shoulder and say, only listen to the devil. And that that little devil who's appealing to sort of your worst instincts. And so he really stoked that. And I began to see a cultural change on the right between 2016 and 2020. And in 2016, a lot of, of people that I knew, I live in a neighborhood that's 85% Republican. So these are my neighbors, right? A lot of people I knew held their nose to vote for Donald Trump. They were voting against Hillary Clinton much more than they were voting for Donald Trump. By 2020, a lot of those people who'd held their nose were like the third bass boat in the boat parade. And what is it that changed? It turns out that they actually liked the way Donald Trump was. They liked the way he attacked his political opponents. And then Donald Trump did something that had sort of some diabolical genius to it. Uh, with the emphasis on the word diabolical. And he persuaded millions of Americans that when the media or anyone attacked him, that they were also attacking them, that Donald Trump was sort of the stand-in. He was the one who took all the slings and arrows for them and that he was them, which is a really odd thing for a Manhattan billionaire to be able to communicate to a whole bunch of working class people in the South and Midwest. But that's what happened. Now, that's not to say that everyone went all in on Trump. I still know plenty of people who held their nose to vote for him in 2020. But the transformation was really based on the very, very clever way that Trump unlocked their animosity. And here's what's really important about it. Made them feel good about their animosity. Mm -hmm. Made them feel that their animosity was justified and right. And so that is something that was so, that's what was so dangerous. That's why, while I didn't anticipate an actual storming of the Capitol on January 6th, I did anticipate serious political violence because I had seen this happen. I had seen how he'd unlocked that animosity and it was feeding it and stoking it. And historically, once you do that, that is, you, you're, you, board a train that leads to violence. Mm -hmm. I didn't anticipate the Capitol being overrun, but I did anticipate serious violence as a result of the hatred that he was unlocking. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag us, and we'll work you in that way. Let's start today with Mike in New Baltimore. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been listening many years, but this is the first time I've called in. Um, I'm a retired educator, and uh, just to think you're making this way too complicated. Um, I live out in a pretty right-wing area, and one of the issues that I have seen of all the Kool-Aid drinkers who follow Trump now, especially, is that it's an education problem. It's a failure of our education system. Uh, those people are angry. They try to find a way to find themselves. And so they follow a man who kind of represents them. Hmm. So, so when you say uneducated, do you literally mean, um, you know, people without advanced degrees or do you mean people? Well, who, there's a, combi yeah, there's a combination there. There's a combination. I would, I call it the, um, the uh, file cabinet group in our school system. They, there was a group of people who all of a sudden disappeared, and I would ask where their CA-60 went, and they said, oh, it's in the file cabinet underneath the counter. I said, okay, where'd they go? Oh, to a different school. Yeah, right, okay. So they dropped out at 16 and disappeared. Hmm. And also the group that, yeah, at, after high school didn't know what they wanted to do, and, and they wanted to work hard, earn a living, do those kinds of things, but get, got angry at all the other people who were kind of, I guess, in a certain way, putting them down for not going on to college or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Mike, I, I really love uh, that you called and shared uh, your, your experience, and I love that your experience with this is primarily in a school, uh, seeing inside uh, schools to, to sort of discover the dynamics there, I think is always really interesting here on the show. Uh, David French, how much does this have to do 
with with education and 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 I guess by that I'm also asking what happened to the ideal or the idea of the Democratic Party representing working class people. Um, you know, Reagan is part of uh, what what gravitates um, you know working class people over to the Republican Party. We're in Southeast Michigan here. It's home of the, yeah. the uh, Reagan Democrats. That's Macomb County. That's where that that coin, that term was coined. Uh, it, as Mike's saying, this is now part of the problem is that there's this anger and resentment uh, that they feel that's driving uh, this this problem that, that that Republicans have. What do you make of that? Yeah, I, I mean, there's unquestionably anger and resentment. And there's also unquestionably a growing education gap in the coalitions. And this is something, though, that's beginning to bring in democratic vulnerabilities going forward. So the Democrats are moving to a much more white college-educated coalition, uh, or to to and having a much larger white college-educated population as part of their coalition, which interestingly enough creates some ideological tensions with the more diverse elements of the Democratic coalition. So white college-educated voters tend to be more progressive than non-white Democrats, and so that creates a a tension there. And it's one of the reasons why, interestingly enough, Republicans have been able to increase their number and the percentage of Hispanic and black voters over the last few election cycles. So there is a realignment occurring around education and that realignment occurring around education actually creates vulnerabilities for both parties because as college educated voters tend to leave the Republican party, those are some of the highest propensity voters in the American electorate. So these are folks who show up to the polls every single time. And, and for all of Donald Trump's attacks on this, the urban voting uh, communities in 2020, what really cost him the presidency were some of the more suburban educated parts of the mm -hmm, country mm -hmm. that had traditionally gone Republican. And so there is an educational realignment and that provides, you know, let, let's put aside for a moment, if we can, some of the talk of the ang anger and, and, and polarization and just sort of talk pure political coalition building that, interestingly enough, presents problems for both parties. And it's one of the reasons why you have not seen a real breakthrough of either party. Um, there's kind of this for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. I, I wouldn't say equal because somebody does win or lose elections, but almost equal and opposite reaction. And so there's a lot of stasis, a lot of calcification in American politics, because as one coalition grows, one part of your coalition grows, it tends to push out another part of your coalition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is uh, that's why both parties are struggling to form enduring majorities in this country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, again, really appreciate the call uh, and the provocative observations there. Let's go next to Rick in Detroit. Rick, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Stephen. Hey. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, great. Uh, my question is, how does race play into the uh, proposition that the Republicans or the conservatives now view gaining power as the primary issue, whereas in the past, under Reagan and before, it was reduced in the role of government and the power of government. Is race just a vehicle, or was it has always been just a vehicle? I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. Rick, I uh, really appreciate the question, and uh, I really appreciate you pushing the conversation in this direction. These were, were questions on my list as well uh, about race. Uh, David, we talk a lot on this show about race and inequality, about opportunity and, and you know barriers that still exist in our society. And I, I got to be honest, uh, you know, uh, most of the time, the things that we're talking about um, are are empowered through um, you know through conservative policy or Republican policy at this point. The, you know many of the things that drive the inequality that we see, uh, I think, grow out of uh, the things that we've already been talking about. But but I'm curious about your take on 
race and conservatism, race and the Republican Party, uh, and and I guess why uh, why anyone who's African American or Latino or or non-white uh, could 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 or should be identifying with you know conservatism or republicanism at this point. Yeah, so that's a really good question with a complicated answer. So <laughs> so on the one hand, look, let's this is the understatement of the century. White Southern populism has always had a massive race problem. Mm-hmm. And so if you are going to be appealing to sort of classic white Southern populism, you're going to you're going to see a lot of out and out racist uh, crawling out of the woodwork. And one of the things, if you spend any time online uh, over since the rise of Trump, you'll have seen uh, so really some grotesque racism that has, come out into the open in a way that I hadn't seen it in the years previous to 2015. Certainly it existed decades before that, but white Southern populism has always had a race problem. But what's interesting is, as I said, the percentage of black and Hispanic voters who voted Republican has increased. Mm -hmm. Now, why is that? That's an interesting question. And the well, part of the answer actually lies in religion. So if you look at um, the most church-going population in the United States of America, aside from Mormons, Mormons go to church more than anybody, <laughs> but aside from Mormons, it's black Democrats and white evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So the core of both the Democratic and Republican parties is a hu- are millions of very church-going folks. Now, interestingly, the most secular cohort, big demographic cohort in American politics is white Democrats. So the gap between non-white and white Democrats on religion is growing wide. And so a number of folks from from non-white parts of the Democratic coalition are migrating to the Republican party because they are more culturally in sync with some of the religious voters of the Republican Party. And so the Democrats really have an issue with this God gap. It's something that I've written about where there is a big part of their coalition is much more secular. Another big part is much more religious. And that religious part is more moderate than the more secular part. And and this is something uh, Nate Silver identified this. Uh, Nate, I'm sorry, Nate Cohn from... New York Times in 2019, and one of the most prescient pieces about the 2020 election and the rise of Joe Biden that you'll have read. And, and what he's noticed was that the on very online portion of Democrats was about one third, and it was disproportionately white, disproportionately well-educated, and disproportionately very socially liberal. Two thirds of the Democratic Party was not online very much, and they were disproportionately non-white hmm. and disproportionately culturally moderate and some of them even conservative. And the thesis essentially was is people need to be running to appeal to the two-thirds. Well, it, when you look at it like that, it's no surprise that Joe Biden, who was the most moderate and also one of the most outwardly faith-oriented of the Democratic candidates, swept to the nomination. And so this is a tension in the Democratic coalition, and it's one of the reasons why you see some black and Hispanic voters moving to the more religious Republican party. And that's a vulnerability the, the Democrats are gonna have to deal with. Now the vulnerability the Republicans have to deal with is a lot of those black and Hispanic voters move over into the Republican party. And sadly, they're gonna encounter some ugly stuff. And so the question is, are they gonna then move back over to the Democratic Party. All of this is in a is in a state of flux, and so um, it it the the reason why you would see more Democratic and uh, more previously Democratic Black and Hispanic voters moving over to the right is that they're more culturally conservative, and and this is something that again Democrats need to think hard about because you cannot create a majority party in this country off of white college educated voters. You just can't. It's not possible. You have to appeal beyond that group of people. And that includes appealing to culturally moderate and even culturally conservative working class voters, white and non-white. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with David French. Also, continue hearing from you on the phones and on social. Queen in Detroit, Dennis in Dearborn. We'll get to you next. Uh, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Our guest is David Wrench, a senior editor at The Dispatch, a conservative magazine, also contributing writer for The Atlantic. We're talking about conservatism and the Republican Party and this right side of the political spectrum here in America that seems to be in a fair amount of turmoil. What is that turmoil about? Uh, why is it playing out the way it is? Uh, and what is the future look like for uh, conservatism and the Republican Party. I want to hear from you as well during the conversation, especially if you are a conservative. What do you make of all of this? And uh, what do you think uh, the party needs to do to, to kind of stop this internal conflict uh, and get back to the ideal of governing? Um, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can work into the conversation. Before we get back to our listeners, David, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you think the path forward looks like. And and I want to ask it in a really specific context. Uh, one of the Republicans who did very well two weeks ago on Election Day was Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida. Uh, I hear a lot of Republicans and conservatives pointing to him saying, well, yeah, this looks like a pretty bright future, at least in contrast to, to the other leaders uh, that the party has right now. But again, when you look closely at his record, how conservative is Ron DeSantis, <laughs> for instance? I mean, this is somebody who went to war uh, with Disney uh, over yeah. its recognition of LGBTQ rights in that community. Um, a, a Republican fighting with the largest business uh, in his state uh, over a a personal privacy issue. I, I can't find a conservative value in there. So, yeah. so is that the path forward, or are we still looking for what what uh, what is a conservative path forward for the Republican Party? So the Ron DeSantis case is interesting because I would put him, I would say there are three categories here that you have to think about when you're thinking about Ron DeSantis. You've mentioned one of them, which is what I would call Ron DeSantis, the more authoritarian culture warrior. Mm -hmm. In other words, this is Ron DeSantis passing things like a stop woke act that infringe on free speech, retaliating against Disney for Disney's own free speech or passing social media regulations that infringe on free speech. And he's been blocked in the courts in, there's at least three injunctions in operation right now against some of his more egregious attacks on free speech. And that's where Ron DeSantis has gotten some real notoriety, say on primetime Fox or in parts of Twitter. Mm -hmm. Then there's Ron DeSantis. The other aspect of Ron DeSantis, which is ambassador for Florida's very low taxes, no no income, state income tax, for example, and very business-friendly regulatory environment for economic growth. And that is, that is um, traditional republicanism. And he's very proud of ta Florida's low taxes, la uh, much less onerous regulation, business regulations as a place very hospitable for business. And that is what appeals to an awful lot of people. Mm. The third aspect is, let's not forget, he just came out of handling a serious, a, a serious crisis quite competently. And that was the hurricane that had just struck 
um, Florida. Sure. He was he was out in front of that. He was handling that. And so, uh, you know, a lot of folks sort of want to look at Ron DeSantis and say he's his popularity is monocausal, uh, that it is because of his culture warring. Well, that's not quite true, because if you look at other Republican governors who have the other two factors in their in their biography, say uh, Brian Kemp, who also has created a very business friendly environment in Georgia, has been a competent governor. Mike DeWine in Ohio, again, has made Ohio more business friendly. He's a very competent governor. They also sailed to reelection. Um, DeWine, I think, by one of the highest margins of all, or close to DeSantis's. And so, and and so the idea that sort of the DeSantis culture war path is the path, I think, is yet to be proven. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, you know, a lot of folks look at DeSantis and see monocausal. Well, everyone likes him because he owns the libs, so to speak. <laughs> when the reality is, if he didn't have the other components to his record, I don't think he sails to victory. Um, because in fact, he hadn't quote owned the libs all that much. He's lost in court a lot as he's tried. And so I think that it will be very interesting to see what happens next. Um, there's a real, I would say, if you're looking at a Trump coalition and then sort of a more classic conservative coalition, DeSantis sort of has a foot in both. And uh, it will it will be interesting to see in the primary if he keeps trying to keep a foot in both or if he'll move more fully into one camp or the other because it's hard to out Trump Trump quite frankly <laughs> um, and so how do you offer that contrast to Trump if you're actually in that you know that confrontation with him yeah yeah uh, I want to go back to the phones here in a uh, call that I think is uh, particularly relevant here Kate in Detroit go ahead. Hello. Hey, Kate. What's up? Go ahead. Um, should I just basically say what I said? Yes. Before? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, where I see the Republican Party going or to see it continue to thrive would be to combine some forces. Like, I guess I, I say I'm a moderate conservative um, and identity politics have really taken over a lot of everything that people are focused on. And I think that is one of the major factors of the dividing of the party, because on social media, everything, they just blow it up, make it look as worse than they as worse as they can. And I think that in order for the Republican Party to thrive, they need to incorporate a happy medium and just kind of be open to a little bit more of those social politics, even though they're what's kind of stopping everybody from, mm. I don't know, joining together. It's kind of hard to see sometimes, and all you want is everyone to get better, the world to get better, but on social media, all that kind of stuff, they just divide everybody. So, so Kate, I'm going to call you out just a little bit here. You sound like a pretty young uh, member of our community, and you identified yourself as a moderate conservative. I want to know more about that. What makes you a moderate conservative in your mind? I guess, honestly, it would be I agree with the way to run a country, the uh, Republican conservative way, but my, the way I interact with people, I try to follow like, you know, political correctness as best as I can, just accepting everybody for who they are, Hmm. all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, I know like gay marriage is like a thing that's still like within the Republican party, like not supporting it, but I think that that is old news. I think it's the 21st century. And that is here to stay. So, so for you, it really is about things like economics and business regulations. As you said, things about running the country that make you a conservative, but not the social things. Um, just board, stuff with the border, stuff with taxes, regulating them, how we should be spending our money, hmm. um, yeah. how we should be protecting our citizens, putting American citizens first. Um, yeah. Kate, I, 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 I don't want to cut you off, but I, 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 I'm going to run out of time, and I absolutely want to have David French respond to what you said, but I really appreciate you calling and, uh, and sharing your perspective here. David French, we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, talk about someone like Kate, who I, I think fits very nicely into something you were talking about earlier with the, the kind of future of 
conservatism and republicanism and she's young which which uh, you know a lot of times people think that's not that doesn't uh, align with conservatism anymore yeah, you know, if Kate's view wins, the Republican Party is going to be a lot better off <laughs> because, you know, I do think that there is a sense, and Kate represented it quite well, where people are, they want government to do things well. They want government to be competent. For example, a competent government does, in fact, control borders. Um, a competent government does, in fact, establish a regulatory environment where businesses can thrive. And also people are very weary of identity politics. And I think the first party that can really break past identity politics is a party that can do very well. And, and what's ironic, and go back to the vulnerabilities of the Democrats, the white college educated voter in the Democratic Party is actually more radical. Uh, when you look at the polling on, on issues regarding race, they're more radical than black voters. So again, this is something that tends to mean that black voters are sometimes alienated even by the Democratic parties, the white progressive bases, emphasis on identity. Mm. And, and so there is a, and you know, again, on the Republican side, as I talked about this sort of dark racial underbelly to white populism, there's an identity politics category there as well. And I think that there is, a real American consensus that wants to be done with that, and the first party that can be done with that will be a party that will do well. Yeah. Uh, David French of The Dispatch, really, really great to have you here to help us think all of this through. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to sit down with the station's music hosts to talk about Thanksgiving, what you're cooking, what you're thankful for, and what you are doing to celebrate the holiday. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.